0: Father. We are thankful and privileged to be here again in relative peace and safety. You've given us another opportunity to study your word, to delve into the mysteries and the blessings of knowing you better and your wonderful grace. We pray that we will have minds that will dig deeper into your truth and hearts that will be more receptive wills that are stronger to carry through. be with uh, take the tongue as out that your spirit may speak to him for his sake. Amen, thank you <coughs> well uh, our topic is still the Sabbath and uh, uh, I have uh, called this one uh, Sabbath and the Revealer and uh, the text here is the Gospel of John and since we will not cover everything, we won't. We'll, we'll hardly get to the topic of the Sabbath in the Gospel of John today. I have put a, uh, this is the first of at least two or three uh, discussions on the Sabbath in the Gospel of John. I think the Gospel of John is the is the most important Sabbath text in in, uh, in all of the Bible. Uh, And that would be true even even by a quantitative measure, because there is more discussion about the Sabbath in the Gospel of John than just about, or than anywhere else. Uh, Two of the chapters are, are dedicated to what Jesus did on the Sabbath. Now... <clears throat> Let's just position ourselves. I was a little uh, in doubt, should we do this or shouldn't we? But I think we have to do it because we will not know the t- type of environment into which we are looking or to which we are speaking unless we uh, discuss a little of what has happened the, the, our understanding of the Gospel of John in the past century or so. Here is a statement from Rudolf Bultmann. He says... A fragment of tradition is a primary source for the historical situation out of which it arose. And is only a secondary source for the historical details concerning which it gives information. Now look at that for a moment. <clears throat> and I'll tell you a couple of things about Bultmann. Bultmann is in, in what is called what you might call critical theology or academic New Testament. Uh, studies. He is the most influential person in the 20th century. Uh, he uh, was influential for at least 50 years, and, uh, and he still casts a shadow. I think in some ways there seems to be a resurgence of interest in Bultmann uh, and his, his contribution. He is also the foremost uh, interpreter of the Gospel of John of his time. His commentary on the Gospel of John was translated into English many years ago, and is probably has not been outdone as a commentary on the Gospel of John by any other commentators. That is not to say that, that Buchman is correct on in his views. I think in many ways he is, he is uh, mistaken. But it is a very interesting commentary to read, because because it is whole cloth. It is a, a, uh, he, he has an idea of what this book is up to, and he pursues that idea consistently, more so than other commentators that, that go here and they go there and they pick something here and pick something there, and there is no coherence to, to the vision. Now, his view is quite visionary, and it is quite coherent, and, and it is hugely, hugely influential. So... What is he saying here? Uh, What is he saying about... uh, And and this relates to all the the Gospels, but it relates primarily to the Gospel of John, uh, what Bultmann is saying here. A fragment of tradition means that there is something in the New Testament that is... Uh, that is, uh, you know, about how, how the story of Jesus came about, how the story of Jesus is, is relayed or, 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 or comes down to us, you might say. So, Jesus, he lived here, and the Gospel of John was not, li- was not written within the lifetime of Jesus. Nobody disagrees with that. We do not think that the Gospel of John was written by Jesus or while Jesus was still on earth. Or is that a debatable problem? It, was, it wasn't it was written by Jesus. And it was not written within the lifetime of the earthly life of Jesus. Is that... We agree on that, don't we? Mm-hmm. So there is distance, there is temporal distance, distance in time, between the life of Jesus and the Gospel of John. We don't know exactly how many years uh, went by, but... Some time went by before the Gospel of John was written. So what is Bultmann saying there? Let's hear uh, uh, from the audience what you hear him say, or what what kind of, of uh, what's, the, what's the idea here? What is he saying? What do you hear him say? Chris? He's saying that uh, it's valid, it's a primary source for the situation, what the background sociology was, the geography but that it's only a partial source for individual events or particular details. Mm -hmm. We can specify maybe that that, that's, that's in the right direction. So let's put something else in here. We will put believing in Jesus or believers in Jesus. That that is, you know, Jesus had his earthly life, and then, after his earthly life, people, even within the lifetime of Jesus, the people started believing in him. And then that went on. So people continue. You know, there were uh, there was there emerged uh, groups of believers in Jesus after the lifetime of Jesus. And then, and then at some point here is the Gospel of John. Now, what is Goldman saying? He is saying that. The Gospel of John and the other Gospels is a primary witness to what happened here, and only a secondary witness to what happened to what happened here. You see, it's kind of first hand. You get a front seat to what happened in the post-Jesus era, but you only get to know what happened in the post in the in the Jesus era secondary. That's a hugely influential view. It means that Jesus is in some ways lost to view in a primary sense. And that, has been, that was not a new idea with Bultmann, but it was articulated by him uh, and, and, and had certain consequences uh, in his time. So, uh, just to clear, let's see if we can clarify that point. I'm not suggesting I clarify, I guess my question is, so when he is saying that the writer of the Gospel of John, if not the John who was the disciple who had first came knowledge of Jesus. Well, he, he might be saying that. That might be what he is saying. That that uh, uh, because, So so you you could say, well, <clears throat> well, there is in the Gospel of John a close connection to the life of Jesus. And, and so... Uh, and would Bulthman doubt that? In some ways he would. So, so we'll, we'll just see, see what he says first, that, that he prioritizes, that the story in the Gospel of John, in some ways is a reflection of, of, of belief in Jesus, whether or not that belief is really related to what happened, what, what actually happened, what, what, what did Jesus do, you know, did he, did he raise Lazarus, Uh, Did he do things like that? Uh, Or is that something people uh, believed? Uh, That was a belief that came about whether or not Jesus actually raised Lazarus. So, Bothman is very, very influential and and has has influence, and and it it bears on the topic of the Sabbath. So, I'll give you a few more (coughs) thoughts here on this. In 1968, another book was published... Uh, Bultmann published his commentary on John in the 50s, and it was published in the U.S. Uh, quite a few years after that in English. But this person, he taught at Union Theological Seminary. His name is uh, J. Lewis Martin, and he is uh, still alive. And he is a very clever person. I have, uh, I have enjoyed his book. This one is called History and Theology in the Fourth Gospel. And it's probably, next to Bultmann, the most influential book on the Gospel of John in the, in the, late, uh, in the last 50 years or so, uh, among a certain type of reader, among certain people who, who have an appetite for sort of academic and, and, and somewhat critical uh, views of uh, sort of uh, examining the text of the Bible uh, from, from the ground up, you might say. And he is influenced by Bultmann. Everybody in his generation uh, had been influenced by Bultmann. He taught at, at Union Theological Seminary and he has also written a wonderful commentary on Galatians. I think his, his commentary on Galatians has a lot to offer, actually. Uh, maybe more so than this book. Because this book poses a huge challenge to the kind of interpretation of the Sabbath that I would like to pursue in our, in our context. So what is Martin saying? He's saying, he's basically taking, taking the same paradigm and saying, that when you read the gospel of john you read about jesus in the gospel of john but you don't read about jesus only you read you read about jesus and then you read about what happened in the early days of groups who believed in jesus and that's inside the text it is not uh, it, it is not it, it it's there is a there is, there are, there is a, the Gospel of John and he calls it a two level drama where one level is what happened in the lifetime of Jesus to Jesus, and the other level in the drama is what happened inside that early group of people, the early community of believers in Jesus, you might say so so the Gospel of John says New Martin should be read as a two level Drama, where in some ways the primary drama is what happens to what he calls the Johannine community, the group of believers in Jesus. Now, I'd like you to understand this. So, if you don't, or uh, whether or uh, whatever, uh, I'd like to hear questions, comments to that, that, uh, that uh, uh, paradigm. It's been hugely influential, as I said. So, so did you understand what, what he's saying? So, you were reading the Gospel of John. We're reading about Jesus. But, we're also reading that other story. The story of the early community of believers in Jesus who have problems, of all kinds of problems. And one of the problems they have is that they get expelled from the synagogue. And let's read a couple of texts in in uh, the Gospel of John to see how that that works. So let's read John 9.22, if one of you would read that. Uh, Chapter 9 in the Gospel of John is the chapter about one of the Sabbath healings of Jesus. Uh, The two chapters where Jesus heals on the Sabbath is chapter 5 and chapter 9. Chapter 9 is entirely devoted to the healing of a man born blind on the Sabbath, and the aftermath, the discussion about about that event. So nine twenty-two. Let's read it. His parents sent him because they were afraid of the Jews, but the Jews had already agreed that anyone who asked Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Okay, uh, and there is a term for that. There is a noun: apost synagogue. That that means to be, that you were severed, you were severed you from, syna- from the synagogue. And there is a kind of, it's like that, 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 that there is a certain terminology to that. So let's read, uh, the, that term occurs three times in the Gospel of John, first time in connection with the Sabbath healing. What, what's the discussion here? You know, the man has been born blind and there is a need to ascertain two things. Was he born blind? And does he now see? And his parents, what are the parents doing? Well, it is our son. And he was born blind. End of discussion. No more. We don't want to say more than that. It is our son. He was born blind. How he now sees, we don't know. Because they don't want to be apu synagogos. They don't want to be expelled from the synagogue. That's the, that's the point. So, let's read this one. 12.42 Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not contest it, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Okay. And here this there is a plural of that same word, aposynagogui. So, uh, 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 again, same, same problem. So in this Gospel of John, there is a fear of people being put out of the synagogue. Uh, that, uh, that much is clear. Here is a third one. They will put you out of the synagogue Indeed, an and hour is coming when those who kill you will think that by doing so they were offering worship to God. So, same word, Aposynagogos. And, and that word and that concept and that sort of turn of events within the Gospel of John is the key argument, is the central argument in Blue Martin's book History and Theology in the Fourth Gospel because he says it is inconceivable... He thinks it is quite inconceivable that there would be a sort of formal agreement to exclude people from the synagogue within the lifetime of Jesus. That is something that could have happened only later, only maybe post. He thinks it happens after after A.D. 70, after the fall of Jerusalem, after the Jerusalem has been destroyed. And... and uh, and the center of influence, the center of Jewish religion now is no longer uh, is no longer the temple in Jerusalem. The center of Jewish religion is what the synagogue. The synagogue is more important. Belonging to the synagogue is very important, and getting excluded from the synagogue is a terrible thing. So, so the the proposition here is that the gospel of John we all agree nobody disagrees with that talks about being excluded from the synagogue but what we are really seeing is what happened here as believers in Jesus as Jewish believers in Jesus profess faith in Jesus the synagogue retaliates the synagogue reacts the here in this post AD era the post AD 70 era and they exclude the, 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 those people from the synagogue. See, see what he's saying there? Yes, question? Why is it a problem for these writers to uh, allow that situation to occur in 29? Why does it have to be 1870? <laughs> Why is it a problem? Why couldn't it have happened within the lifetime of Jesus? Well, that is a good question. You know, couldn't it have happened? One of the reasons why they have, uh, uh, why they say so, I, I'll get to a couple, of, a couple of specifics there, but one of the reasons has to do with the term aposunagogo, that that seems to be a word that needed some time to come into being, the, that the terminology itself suggests a sort of sort of a, a timeline. It, it could not have happened that soon that you would have created such a word, you know, the word Aposynagogos, that you would have said it in some other way that you could be excluded from the synagogue. Let's look at a couple of things. The question then here is, uh, and that is your question, that is Danielle's question. Did this happen in the lifetime of Jesus or after the fall of Jerusalem? So, so is it that... Is it a concern within this period, or is it is it a primary primary uh, part of the part of the original story? Yes, it couldn't have happened. They just made up a word for it, like John made up this word for something that actually was happening seventy years after it happened. That is so. a possibility that you could have that that it that the reality happened in the lifetime of Jesus, but the terminology is something that came later. That is a possibility. I think it's called a retro name, so you buy some word in the future, something that happened in the past. That, that, that is a possibility. Yes. Now, there is a specific reason here, and that is that post, the, 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 one of the specifics, and, and, and that takes a, a bit of the discussion in this book, is that After AD 70, and there is no disagreement that this is something that happened after after AD 70, the Jewish synagogue uh, started having uh, a series of benedictions, what is called the 18 benedictions, that at the end of a service in the synagogue, you would read those benedictions. And one of those benedictions, I think it's the 12th, or maybe it's the 18th, now i got not confused. But one of them is called the Birkat Haminim. That is, Birkat is blessing, but Birkat can mean blessing and curse. The word for blessing can also mean curse. It depends on what you're saying, what the content of the blessing is. The Birkat Haminim is a, bless, is a curse on people who, who, who are in some ways unorthodox. And Lou Martin thinks that this Birkat Haminim is actually what you're seeing behind the the exclusion from the synagogue, the upper Synagogus. and this this uh, procedure, this formalized uh, this formalized move to to tra- to track down and exclude people who are dissenting. To basically, as they sit in the synagogue and they pronounce <coughs> the eighteen benedictions. They will pronounce a curse on themselves mm-hmm. if they are believers, in ortho an Orthodox believers. Say if you are a believer in Jesus, you will read the read the Birkat Amin and you will curse yourself. And what would that mean? It means that you will decide not to attend the synagogue so as to avoid <coughs> cursing yourself. You see what I'm saying? So it is a sort of a a, a, a uh, what should I say? Just like you go to a, it's, it's exclusion from the synagogue by self-service in some way, in some it's, also, it's a self, self-implemented exclusion because you wouldn't go there, you wouldn't go to church and read and have a blessing uh, by which you curse yourself, wouldn't you? I mean, you would decide rather not, better not go there because this is not, you know, I can't do it that way. Anyway. I'll try to make this a little clearer later. I just wanted to, to expose you to uh, these uh, thoughts. Now, one other thought then, that has been very influential and that we will, we will critique is a <clears throat> thought that has been articulated by many students of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is different from the other four Gospels. It has certain terminology that's different. It has a certain ambience that's different. And so many readers, many scholars, including Wayne Meeks, who has taught at Yale for many years, uh, thinks that the Gospel of John is a sectarian document. You must understand it in a, as, a, as a book that evolved or that originated in a quite sectarian context. Uh, that, in some ways, is a document where, the, where you see people speaking not outside to the world out there, but inside to the world in here. That you are basically trying to, to uh, you're talking within the community. You might say so. There is this notion that there was a Johannine community, and that this Johannine community has a sectarian bent. That is that is very central to the to. Uh, uh, academic thinking about the Gospel of John. Now, could you say that there could be a Johannine community of sorts reading the New Testament? Well, you read the letters, the the epistles, First John, Second John, Third John, and that seems to fit that a, a somebody speaking to a familiar to a certain group. Those are letters speaking to a to a group that seems seems defined by certain issues certain things but maybe lumping the gospel of john with the letters is a problem maybe that isn't such a good idea maybe they are quite different anyway the tendency of scholars who take that view that there is sectarianism here they tend to put put all of these writings attributed to, to john uh, in the same in the same uh, Uh, back. Here is a statement from Wayne Meeks in in his influential article. Uh, The Gospel is a book for insiders. For if one already belonged to the Johannine community, then we may presume that the manifold bits of tradition that we have taken, that have taken distinctive form in the Johannine circle, would be familiar. The cross-references in the book, so frequently anachronistic within the fictional sequence of events. Anyway, I don't want to read the whole thing. You can read it yourself because it is, it's the beginning of the statement that, that I just wanted to, to highlight. A book for insiders, a book for people already in the know, certain terminology that would be recognizable only to people who know it from before, and so on. It wasn't intended to be read by you and me, It was intended to be read by those people who already belong to the Johannine community. We are readers of the Gospel of John by accident, not by intention. Any questions or comments here? Question here or comment? Much of this could be said about Paul also, Pauline. Well, much of it could be said about Paul, but if you say it about Paul, it would have some merit, because Paul did write letters to define communities. The question is, is the gospel? Is the gospel in the same genre as the the letters of Paul? Or does the gospel assume a wider readership than say the letters of Paul? Of course, the letters of Paul, we read them and we benefit from them, but the letters of Paul were addressed to specific communities, to specific groups, to the church in Rome, to the church in... In, in Corinth and so on. It, it doesn't sound like these theologians really believe that God had anything to do with it. It doesn't sound like they believe God had anything to do with it. Well, there might be a, a, a deficit of belief there. But, but let's just... Uh, uh, I, I, I am not assessing their their belief, uh, or, or the, their uh, belief, faith commitment at this point. I'm just mentioning it, this because it has been so influential, and because it bears on the subject that we will eventually come to, the subject of the Sabbath, and, and the, type of, the type of discussion you will have to have at some point with others who believe otherwise than, than you and I may do. I would strongly disagree with Meeks, book for incited because the Gospel of John speaks most clearly about the divinity of Christ The any of the Gospels. The word was made flesh and the Word was God. You know, it says that several times throughout the book very quick. Yeah but he would not agree that that certifies it as a book for outsiders he would say that this is very much a quite, this would very much fit his criteria that this is a book affirming uh, beliefs of the Johannine community and they do believe in the divinity of Jesus or they believe in what he calls a man from heaven the man from heaven in, jo- in Johanna in sec- sectarianism is, in his, is his article let's move on a little here now there is some some uh, 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 some sort of, of uh, what should I say some hints of something here Inside, on the text in the Gospel of John, there is the world, and there is somebody who is not of the world. Let's read these texts in John 14. It is most conspicuous, maybe, in in, in, in John 14. So we'll read uh, 14, uh, 18 to 21. Let's have that read from the audience. Jesus is speaking here, this is the farewell address of Jesus, which begins maybe John 13 or so, or the, the, the session there begins in John 13, and then goes all the way through till the end of chapter 17. So we have three, four, four four chapters where, where there is a, a, a sort of farewell scene in the Gospel of John. Here is Jesus talking, let's hear it. I will not leave you orphaned. I will come to you. In a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. On that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. So there is here uh, two two, uh, entities described, right? What are the two entities? There is a, The big entity is what? The world. The world. In a little while, the world will no longer see me. That's the big entity. But you will see me. Right? Doesn't it say that? The world will no longer see me, but you will see me. So, there is a distinction between the world and some other group that isn't the world. And then in the end I will love them and reveal myself to them. There is a certain certain sequestering, a privilege privileging of, of that other group, you might say. So there is a response here in the text in the Gospel of John, fourteen twenty-two. Let's read that. Judas, not as curious as to him, Lord, how oh, is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? So so, you have a response from within the text. You know, that was strange. Why would you reveal yourself to us and not to the world? So, this would be one text that some people will read as support for Johannine sectarianism, for Johannine, for a sort of sequestration, separation, you might say, uh, that in some ways the way it supports that. Now, others would say, not so. This is just one more disciple who misunderstands what Jesus is saying. Because as you read on in the text, Jesus continues talking. And there is there is only, only sort of weak links. Jesus talks. What they understand is clearly not exactly what he was talking about. They are in some ways talking past each other. So the response here of Judas, who is not Judas Iscariot, might not that seems in some ways, you know, to confirm the notion that there is a privileging of the community might not be exactly that. Yes, let's hear some comments. I think that that's a good possibility, but there's a lot of things in John where he's speaking to somebody, he's saying something like, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, Nicodemus, so what, what do you mean by that? And the woman at the well. And the salvation is of the Jews. It seems like there's like this inner, inner thing, but he's saying this inner or secret thing to people who he clearly wants to become insiders, as it were. So it's an insider message maybe to outsiders um, throughout the Gospel of John. So maybe there's a community that's calling people outside the community into that community. Well, that that I think you're you're onto something there because in some ways. In some ways, it is obvious to us who read the text, you know, outside. We understand that Nicodemus didn't understand, don't we? So Nicodemus' lack of understanding in some ways facilitates our understanding, doesn't it? The, more, the less they understand, the more we understand. I mean, they're non, not their non-comprehension is in some ways a help to us. The woman at the well, she doesn't understand. You know, these are two ships passing each other in the night. But we understand. You know, we see it. We are, we are in some ways quite omniscient in this in the text. And Judas, not Iscariot, talks here, and well, maybe he understands. Maybe he doesn't. We kind of understand. <coughs> anyway, I just want you to see how this is interpreted by some people, by extremely influential uh, people, such as Ernst Henschen who has written the Hermeneia commentary on the Gospel of John. It follows from this remark that the Johannine community knew itself to be a closed community, more or less. It is not informed by the conscious. This is not my mistake. That's what it says here. Shouldn't it say consciousness? It is not informed by the consciousness. That it, but the text, even in the Hermeneia series, says it is not informed by the conscious. That doesn't seem like a mistake. Would you agree it is a mistake? By the consciousness that it ought to evangelize the world. Rather, its mission has internal limitations. What is he saying? He's saying, this is a statement that proves that this community is turned in on itself and is not open and transparent toward the world. That's how Hentian, who is one leading interpreter, sees, sees it. Now... Here is a different way of looking at those things. <laughs> and This is taking us to more, more closer to our time. <clears throat> I picked up this book in, in Spokane. And we were visiting relatives in Spokane many years ago, I think in 1990 or so. And here is this book in a bookstore by John A.T. Robinson called The Priority of John. I should have brought it. It was published posthumously after he died. Uh, but he was one of the great uh, John scholars of his t- uh, generation, and John Robinson has also written a very influential book on the dating of the books of the New Testament. Has any of you read, read that book? It's time to do a little more reading. <laughs> <laughs> the, the dating of the New Testament by John Robinson is uh, he, he takes, he's quite a liberal theologian. He's the person who wrote the book Honest to God. That was seen as a sort of uh, a, a statement on liberal theology of its time. But his view of the dating of the books of the New Testament is very conservative. He thinks all the books of the New Testament actually uh, may have been written before AD 70. Very few people believe that. He's probably wrong in believing what he believes. But, but you know, I'm just saying that to, to illustrate, <coughs> uh, uh, or as, a, as a, an example... Now, what does he say, the priority of John? Over against what? As compared to what? The priority of John, in what sense? What is the meaning by that, the priority of John? It was quite a, quite a bold statement in its time when this book was published. So, what? any, any thoughts on that? <coughs> Which... Which of the Gospels in the New Testament should have priority? Which is the, the, the primary Gospel? It's not the Gospel of John, it is the Gospel of Mark. So he is saying, when he says the priority of John, he is saying, well, here is something for you to think about. The Gospel of Mark is not the Gospel that ought to be seen as the one that has priority when you want to reconstruct the life of Jesus. If you want to do a history of Jesus, or if you want to to get close to the historical Jesus, you do not go to Mark. You go to you go to John. He is challenging the thesis of Markan priority. He's challenging the thesis of the priority of the Gospel of Mark. So you and I would not have known that, because we would not be familiar with this kind of terminology and these these uh, skirmishes, but John Robinson, it, it used to be seen that, yes, even the Gospel of Mark, even the Gospel of Mark may in some ways have been tainted by whatever happened here, so as to blur what happened here, but it is the best you have, you know, better than Matthew, better than Luke, and much, much better than John, who is sort of way too late, way too, too distant, and way too esoteric in its, in its way of talking. Well, all of that is challenged by John Robinson, who is saying, if you really want to get serious about the historical Jesus, now the, book to go to, the go-to book then is the Gospel of John. That's the most complete. you read Mark, there is one and a half years of Jesus' life in John, and in Mark. That's all there is. And, and in John, if you get to John, they go to Jerusalem, they go back, they go to Jerusalem, they go back three years, the full you know, three years of Jesus' public ministry, only in John, and so on. So, so that's one, one uh, sort of shift in, in, in the trend on, on the Gospel of John. Did we see a hand here? Comment on that? Okay, let's move on. Now, here, let's read a text then. Let's just try out, try out these thoughts. And this is a text in the last chapter in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 20 to 23. Let's have that read in, in some, in the, in, with our microphone, uh, helping, helped by our microphone. This is the very last end of the Gospel of John. If you look in your Bibles, you will see that we are just a tough couple of verses from the, from the ending here. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So the rumor spread in the community That this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Okay, this is the very last conversation in the Gospel of John. The three people who are part of this conversation is uh, who are the three three individuals that are part of this conversation. Peter is there. Jesus. Jesus is there. And... No. No. John is not there. <laughs> Who is there? The disciple of Jesus. The beloved disciple is there. Well, you think he is John. Maybe he is. But, but that's... That's not... That's uh, too quick. Uh, so there are three people, the beloved disciple, and, and uh, Jesus and Peter. And... And the Beloved Disciple puts himself into the text. There, this is a, a, an important figure in the Gospel of John. Uh, you will find him, uh, if you go a couple of slides down on your handout, uh, uh, read, read the other text where the Beloved Disciple is referred to, two slides down. The first time the disciple, uh, a person is introduced as the Beloved Disciple is in 13, 20 to 25. What's the occasion? The occasion is the Last Supper. It's a very important occasion. The second time you hear this uh, person uh, mentioned as the beloved disciple is in John 19. What's the occasion? Crucifixion. The crucifixion. And there is a conversation there. Jesus, or there is one among the Jesus talks. What does he say to the beloved disciple? Is your mother, and to Jesus, uh, to his mother, he says, "There is, you know." Mm -hmm. So he is is saying to the beloved disciple, "Take care of my mother." That's what he's doing. So, uh, and then there is a third mention of the beloved disciple, mentioned as the beloved disciple, and not as John, and not named, not ever named in the Gospel of John. By the way, as uh, so that's one of the one of the intriguing things. 20 verse 1 to 8, what's the occasion? Easter morning. That's the resurrection, and there is a foot race, and Peter is running, but the beloved disciple is running faster, and comes to the tomb first, and then there is a third, a fourth mention of the beloved disciple in 21 verse 1 to 7, what's the occasion? Well, that's the occasion. They have gone back to Galilee. They have sort of given up. They think this is not going anywhere. And they are there. And there is a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus in Galilee. And there is the Beloved Disciple. And then there is a fifth explicit mention of the Beloved Disciple. And that's the text we just read. So, the notion of the Beloved Disciple is, is very... the the role of the beloved disciple in the message, in the Gospel of John, is not a trivial thing. He is there at all the important events, isn't he? The Last Supper, the cross, the resurrection, farewell, you know, with Peter, the last scenes there is the beloved disciple. And now, this claim, on behalf of the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John. This is the disciple who is testifying these things, and has written them. No other gospel tries to identify the source the way the gospel of John does. And what does he claim on the gospel, on the behalf of of his source? What does this gospel claim on behalf of its source? What does he do? I was there. I was there. I saw. Gospel, the beloved disciple, where where was he on the Last Supper? Looking through the the window from outside. No. He was sitting right next to Jesus. And he was the interlocutor. Where was he at the cross? There is your mother. There is your son. Where is he at the resurrection appearance? I mean, at the resurrection. And why is he such a fast runner? And he saw it. He went in and he saw it and believed. He saw what? You know, he saw the clothes there and the headdressing there. You know, so what sort of claim does the Gospel of John make inside the text of the Gospel? It makes the claim that this is eyewitness testimony. That is the claim made within the text. Now, is it? Well, that's, of course, not not uh, something you can pronounce on. But that is the claim the Gospel makes. And that takes us back to John Robinson's (coughs) revisionary view that the Gospel of John has priority because Mark, even if you identify Mark as the Mark that accompanied Paul in Acts 13, he was not one of the twelve disciples. Luke? Luke, by admission, wasn't one of the disciples. Luke says does not say that he that he was there and he experienced it. Luke says I wasn't there, but I talked to people who were. You know, I did research, I investigated, I used the best sources. But the Gospel of John puts its source and foregrounds its source in ways that the other Gospels do not. And now should we recognize that? And then so what do you see here? The claim of eyewitness testimony, and then this response John 21:24 the last part and we know that his testimony is true who is saying that so who do we have what sort of voices do we have within the gospel of John here based on verse 24 21:24 24 only only 21:24 who do we have here? Well, you need to do verse 23 too. You can back up it to verse 23 and include that if you want to. But who do we have? Uh, I mean, if you you just do 24, we have the beloved disciple there, don't we? So we have the beloved disciple and and to him is attributed the message of the book. Sort of the primary story. Who else do we have? Somebody talking as we, isn't it? Who is we here? Who is responding? I mean, is that the beloved disciple? Is that the beloved disciple saying that? I mean, that would be... Could the beloved disciple be saying that? Even that is probably a stretch. I would suggest that in the text in uh, in, in, uh, 21-24, you have the beloved disciple, and you have a narrator, It isn't only the beloved disciple, that's too simplistic. And you have something more than the narrator. You might have a group of people, some kind of respondents. We, whoever they are. They could even in some loose sense in some loose sense be a kind of Johannine community. They could be the church. uh, of his time that heard this testimony in some ways. So there is some merit. And I was almost going to say that Johannine community or any such notion is completely fictitious. Get rid of it. But maybe that is a little too strident, a little too, too simplistic. Let's try to read this text now in a way. I tried it in my class the other day. I want to try it again. You're more numerous. You can do it louder. Okay. <clears throat> Brad, you will be the narrator. <laughs> and and uh, the rest of us we will be the community. We'll do it twice. And then see how this might have worked because you have a very you have a situation here that could be analogous to the situation in the book of Revelation. He who testifies these things says I'm coming soon. Amen. Come. Lord Jesus, who is saying that? Somebody is talking back inside the text, someone is talking back to the message of the text, and inside the text in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, someone is making a claim on behalf of the text, and inside the text you hear the response. so let's do it. Uh, uh, Brad will uh, read uh, the first part of 2124 and we will just just try this. Yeah. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them. And And we know know that his testimony testimony is is true. Do it a little louder, because it's more fun if it's a little louder. So let's do it again, one more time. (laughs) Never again. (laughs) This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them. And And we know that his testimony is true. Interesting. See it that way. Because there is a response, there is a claim inside the text, somebody speaking here who is weak. Now, <clears throat> let's move on. Challenging these entrenched views of the Gospel of John, here is one person who, who is worth listening to, James Charlesworth, or John Charlesworth. Is it John, John or J.H. Charlesworth? He, is, he used to teach at uh, Claremont but he is now teaching at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary. He is one of the foremost experts of our time on, on the Dead Sea Scrolls. He has written extensively on the Dead Sea Scrolls and the importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he is probably the foremost expert on what is called the Old Testament pseudepigrapha. Those are the texts, uh, those are old texts, texts older than uh, than the Gospels, who did not make it into the biblical canon. The book of Enoch, 1st Enoch, is a, belongs in the Old Testament pseudepigrapha. And Charlesworth is a, has edited the most up-to-date edition of the Old Testament pseudepigrapha. Two big volumes have been edited by J. H. Charlesworth. He's a very good scholar. I have met him a couple of times, and I wanted to... He gave a presentation at Society of Biblical Literature a couple of years ago that I really wanted, and I asked him if he could share it with me. He said he would publish it, but he still hasn't published it, and I'm very, very disappointed. <laughs> he, gave, he talked again this year, last year in, in San Francisco, and he is very, very adamant on this point. He says that archaeological i I'm not quoting here, these are my words, that archaeological discoveries in Jerusalem and beyond provide evidence in support of the notion that the Gospel of John is a reliable witness. There is a precision. There is a knowledge of detail in the Gospel of John. There is at least claims. You go to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and there is Jesus' first Sabbath healing in the Gospel of John. There was in in, in Jerusalem a place called what? Well... There was a gate called the Sheep Gate. And there was a pool called the Pool of Bethsata. Not just a gate, but a sheep gate. Not just a pool, but a Bethsata pool. And there were some colonnades there, some rows of uh, columns. You know, how many? Five columns. Five colonnades. Very specific. J. S. Charlesworth says, you know, all this stuff about the Gospel of John being remote from its subject, its primary subject, is baloney, that this is a gospel that ventures forth on detail in ways that no other gospel does, and he is very, very uh, adamant about this. It would be interesting to invite him to come here and talk once, that would... Would be a good good thing to do because he is very uh, much involved now in archaeological projects in in Israel and in, in Jerusalem, and has p- himself participated in some of the, the excavations they have done at the Pool of Bethesda. He can show you the pictures. It's very fascinating, extremely fascinating. So, <clears throat> so here again, then, then uh, the distance. The distance between the book and what could very well be its primary subject is now shrinking. There is less distance. Now, maybe this, whatever happens here, isn't quite as as influential, isn't quite as big a a deal within the text of the Gospel of John. Do you follow what I'm saying? You know, we've done this the hard way. It has to be done the hard way. You know, it's good for us to do it the hard way. I think to kind of orient ourselves and then see to have our whatever. Even if it comes back to, oh, that's what I always believed. Well, maybe you can believe it with some, you know, for better reasons. Even if it's nothing changed. It seems that there are a number of things in the Gospels that you would not want in there if you were trying to support. The early community. I mean, the disciples always appear so dull and doubting. And I don't even recall which gospel it is that on the resurrection, some of them doubted. You know, why would you put that in if you're trying to? But um, well, that's 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 a good a good point. I, I think it's a it's a valid point now. Now, Bultmann, what would he say? He would say that our writer is a very good writer and he knows how to make it interesting and stuff like that. There is always a a way to to even account for some of those things. Now, let's look at some other texts here in the time that remains. Let's read now quickly. Let's do this quickly. Ten said 16, Jesus talking. And I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So this is our primary subject, Jesus, and what does he do? Is he turned inward or is he turned outward? Is he turned outward. This other sheep, and he wants to reach those other sheep too. Let's read fifty. Uh, let's continue there, Michael. Eleven fifty-one, fifty-two. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but for, but to gather into one and disperse the children of God. So is it inward or outward? No. It's only for the nation. No, it's not only for the nation, it is for, you know, and this is Iceanic, you know, universa- universality, not for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God, who could be who? That could be to whom it may concern. Couldn't it be just just about anyone? Let's read uh, from uh, several verses from John 17. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. So the Johannine community sequestered from the world? Not in the prayer of Jesus. I am not asking you to take them out of the world. That even... There is a self-consciousness of not... You know, you be in the world, but not of the world. You know, something to think about for all our, our religious communities here. 17, verse 18. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So you're not just in the world, sort of in, 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 in a sort of haphazard way, but you are in the world as someone sent into the world. That's, you know, there is a mission in the world, as it were. The 17, 20 to 21 I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am, am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is not in reach, this is outreach, isn't it? Very conspicuous outreach. And here, uh, uh, one more, uh, 20, 20 to 21. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Amazing amazing, consistent, and it isn't, you know, sectarian language, is it? It is, it is, it is outreach language. Now, let's just do uh, one more text here, and, and our time will, uh, will be up. Uh, open your Bibles, those of you who have Bibles, and read, uh, uh, and let's see what your Bible says. This is, uh, my text is from the NRSV. Uh, And uh, 2031, which could have been the last verse in the Gospel of John, if not for the fact that we have chapter 21 as well. But here is a claim, you know, for whom was this Gospel written? These are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life to His name. If you read it in this translation, for whom is this Gospel written? so that you may come to believe. It's written for somebody who doesn't yet believe. You could say it's Jews, but it could also be, you know, it could be you and me. Now, but some of you have another translation. You have what? I say the Jews because in your translation they use the word Messiah. This is the New King James Version. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Yeah, but some of you have another translation. Continue to believe. Who is that? Where was that? You have continued to believe. Yes, because there is a nasty S here, you know, <coughs> that confuses everybody because it could be this way, it could be that way. It, it, if it, you read it with the S in the aorist tense, then it would be so that you may come to believe. But if you read it without the S in the present tense, it would be so that you may continue to believe. So it is ambiguous. And it is ambiguous all the way down to, to the the text, the text available to us, whether it is continue to believe or come to believe. Now, <laughs> we see an openness to the world in this book, so, so saying come to believe would be true, and, and uh, we'll have to pick it up from there next time. Let's stop here. So, we haven't yet gotten to the Sabbath except by a very brief mention, but I hope we have seen that, that the Jesus of the Gospel of John will be a Jesus who engages the world, who heals the world, and is, has plans for the world, and that the believer in Jesus is also a person who will heal the world in some ways and be open to the world, and we'll have to, to uh, do the rest of those next time, so.